Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. That was clearly understood, right? We don't need to make any comment on that text. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Is that you or me? Good question. Um, well, we'll start over. Good morning, church. <laughs> Hey, uh, we are going to be looking at a text this morning. I've asked Michael DeFazio. For those of you who don't know Michael, he's a professor at Ozark Christian College, and he preaches for us regularly. He and his wife Beth and family are members of our church. And Elijah Daly, who's our creative arts minister, and you know Elijah, he lead, has led worship here for the last five years. And, and uh, I've asked both of these guys to join me on stage to cover a text that is very, very complicated and I believe very misunderstood and want to bring it in within our series to where we're at and discuss what it means for us as well as what it meant for the disciples at the time. The key to this, however, is to remember where we've been so you know where we're going. Uh, We are in the final week of Jesus' ministry here. He has been teaching publicly in the temple. And while teaching, he he has been confronted with some questions. And once those questions were asked, they were trying to get Jesus trapped. And once he answered their questions brilliantly... He turned around and used that against them, and he went after them. Peter Buckland spoke several weeks ago on this stage about the seven woes found in the Scripture where Jesus warned them about their behavior and how it was going to cost them because it was not led by faith. It was led by the appearance that it would cost them their relationship with God if they didn't awaken and change. And so we get to this moment in time that in the temple area, as they're leaving the temple, the disciples make a comment to him about how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus then turns in a series found in Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24 primarily. Both of those texts can be read by yourself this week and listen after we've instructed you as to what it's talking about. In in those two particular chapters, Jesus paints a picture of what's going to happen with a warning. And that's the context of this particular passage. It's often stripped out of that context and used significantly Uh, to say other things. And we want to be real careful this morning that we draw it from its context and treat it properly. So I'm going to begin with Michael. Michael, what's going on in this text and how do we exegetically, how do we use the principles of interpretation to understand it for ourselves? Yeah, I mean, you set it up really great. Just so much of it is remembering that this, we can't separate this out from what's been happening before and after. So I don't need to review everything you just said because that's exactly what's, that's exactly the case. So coming out of some of these conversations that Jesus had with these religious teachers, they step away from Jerusalem a bit. And as they're walking away, they look back and the disciples are just really impressed. I mean, you heard it in the beginning of the text. They're like, man, look at these amazing buildings and stones. And if you've ever seen pictures of the temple in Jerusalem, it's really impressive. I mean, even with our, uh, you know, technology, technological abilities, it would be a pretty impressive feat. When you think about thousands of years ago, these stones, some of which were as long as the front part of this stage and, and you know, four feet thick in every direction, it was, it was just, it was a massive thing. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, don't be impressed. This stuff's going to all be thrown down. And then they ask him a couple questions. They ask him, you know, what are going to be the signs of this and, and, and uh, when will this happen? When will, when will these things take place and what will be the sign of the coming of the age and of the end? And they kind of think that this is all one fairly simple question. And the reason why this text gets complicated is because Jesus knows the answer to their question is more complicated than they're going to expect because their question isn't quite as simple as they think. 
In their mind, they have come to Jerusalem and Jesus is about to do the thing that the Messiah came to do and he's going to win in some sort of battle and he's going to be victorious and he's going to be vindicated as the, as the one who God has sent to save us and this is going to usher in a new world. And so when Jesus starts to talk about how, listen, like I'm the Messiah, the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem are corrupt and it's going to be them being judged by God and me being raised up, they think all of this is going to happen at once. And so basically what Jesus does in this passage is he kind of goes back and forth a little bit and answering their questions, talking about two things, really. He's, first of all, talking to them about uh, the immediate events to come in the next generation. Of course, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to be with the Father are all about him being the king. And then uh, within that generation, he is saying in this context, uh, in Mark chapter 13, that there's going to be a battle here in Jerusalem and that God's judgment is actually going to be demonstrated when the temple falls into the hands of pagan leaders. And I'm telling you that this is going to take place. It's coming soon. It's going to happen. But then in the middle of this, he then kind of stretches it out even further and says, now, but ultimately all these things are pointing forward to the end, 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 to the end of all things, to the return of Jesus, where he comes and finishes this victory that he's established and then ushers in the new world. And so the reason why it's confusing is because we're going back and forth a little bit, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, and then also about the return of Christ at the end. So a couple of principles real quick. I'll try to keep this super simple. One would be um, that when, when, when the prophets of Israel or when people like Jesus would talk about events in these ways, they would do so by using a lot of figurative language. And so we have to remember that um, not all the language is meant to be literal. And so when you, sometimes you think, well, I'm going to take it literal because I'm a serious Bible student. I mean, that's cool, but it's not like honoring to Scripture to take it literal when it's supposed to be figurative. That'd be one thing. Another thing to keep in mind would be that, um, that Jesus is often alluding to Old Testament texts that he and they would have known, but that we might not pick up on. We'll talk about some of those, I think, in the course of our time today. That sometimes his point in referencing something or in talking about something is to make his hearers think about what one of the prophets said to Israel long ago so that they'll understand the significance. I know that sounds confusing. Here is, I think, his point. He's alluding to a bunch of Old Testament passages about God judging pagan nations, except he's flipping the script on them. And now Israel, because she's been unfaithful to the Messiah, she's been unfaithful to God, she's now receiving God's judgment. So the first thing would be figurative language. Second would be Old Testament. And the third one would be um, that sometimes people have talked about this, and I think it's a helpful analogy for this kind of sermon. Uh, If you picture a mountain range, when you look at a mountain range from a distance, it kind of looks like all the mountains are the same distance from you. You can see one like right behind the other one. But if you ever then go to the mountain range, a lot of times you'll discover that there's a huge amount of distance, miles and miles and miles in between the two mountains that look so close. And so that's kind of a a thing that can happen whenever God would reveal something to the prophets in the Old Testament. He's sort of giving them a general picture of what's to come. And they can't always distinguish between, you know, the events that are soon and the events that are far away. Jesus, of course, knows the difference. Uh, But if it will help us to to think about um, him describing these different events as we would describe a mountain range. See that mountain up close right there? Look at how it's, you know, the shape of it looks kind of like, you know, I don't know, you could see some snow on the top and it almost looks like a volcano. 
Now, the one back there actually is a little bit different, and you can notice it's a bit rounder up top, but back to the one up here. And, and so he's talking about different things at the same time. I hope that was helpful, but those would be some of the principles, I think, to keep in mind when we're okay. interpreting this. So let me jump in here. It, for us to understand this, and I know right now that many of us are sitting here going, yes, yeah, so hang on, because there's a principle here that we need to learn. How would the disciples have received this compared to how we receive it today? Okay, good question. I mean, they would have gotten the content a lot more than, than, um, than we would, but there would be an element of surprise. Like, we walk away from this text and we're like, whoa, because it just all seems kind of confusing. They walk away from this text and they're just like, whoa, like, hold on. What? So, so you, you're, you, you were meaning it when you said that Jerusalem was going to fall. You meant it that this place is actually going to be destroyed and you're telling us that's going to happen and that's somehow supposed to help us believe in you and then you're just telling us about this other thing far in the distance and you won't tell us when and we're just supposed to be ready. So they would have walked away similarly surprised, but not because they didn't understand it, more so because they realized, oh my gosh, this man is calling us to trust him completely, even when, even when the events that are about to take place are in many ways the opposite of what we thought God was going to do. So that would be, I think, an element of that for sure. I think if I could jump in too, I think another part of what the disciples begin to probably feel, even as they hear about this, is with the temple being the center of their religion, the center of really their life. Every every family is going to travel here multiple times a year to celebrate the fact that they all of their meaning and purpose is found in this place because it is the house of their God. And so now to hear that this is going to be uh, that the whole thing's going to be ripped down, every stone's going to be torn down. This would have taken them by surprise. One, because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was coming to reestablish everything that they thought was being lost from Rome to begin with. And especially if you look back at the history of the temple, every time it's destroyed, it's because ultimately things were beginning to take place in Israel where they were rebelling and rejecting their God. In fact, with the Babylonians, uh, when we talk about the book of Daniel, which we will a little bit later on, uh, they were specifically in exile because of their king, Manasseh, setting up an Asherapol and a fertility idol in the Holy of Holies and all of the other evil things he was doing. And so some, at some level, I think even they're thinking, how could this possibly happen to us knowing now that you're here? How could the presence of God leave us? And I think that even when we look at the Son of Man coming, which we, I think we will later, uh, we're going to see what the presence of God looks like when it does reveal itself in its perfect form. Any interpretation that you and I take from this text has to initially make sense to the disciples. And it's just a standard uh, interpretive uh, reality. If it didn't make sense to them, we're making more of it than it is. Now, there's the future component we'll talk about in a moment. But if you can hold on to that truth, you'll understand that I love what Elijah just added to it. They would have thought, how in the world could we lose the temple again? And it would have been like us losing the White House and the Pentagon and the, what we felt on 9-11, that pressure of, oh, my goodness, everything that represents who we are is being destroyed. Uh, they would have had even a worse feeling than we felt in that particular time. So, Elijah, let me throw to you. Um, what are the spiritual implications of this text for the disciples? How would they have processed this? And what are some of the dangers of us reading too much into that? Um, well, I think, first off, this, this question always reminds me of a story. Uh, well, w- when I was really just thinking through what, what does a misapplication look like is a story by Stephen Covey. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he has a story in a book that, he, that he's written. And it's essentially about this man who's on a subway in New York. 
And what happens is uh, this guy and his family, his, his kids, get on the subway, and they just, like, the kids just start going crazy. They're causing a disturbance. They're kind of irritating everybody. You know, especially, I don't know if you've ever been on a New York subway, but it's like everybody's minding their own business. And it's, this man starts to take notice of the guy and his family, just the guy just really not helping at all with the kids and just letting them do whatever they want. And finally, it gets so bad that the man finally looks at the guy, and he's like, can you get your kids under control? Like, they are causing a disturbance of, uh, on this entire subway. Everybody can, like, they are irritating everybody, right? He gets to this point. And finally, the guy looks at him, and he just says, I- I'm so sorry. We just got back from the hospital. My, my wife just died, and we're, we're all just processing it really differently right now. And all of a sudden, this story changes when you begin to unpack the actual context of what's going on. And I think that that's similar when we look at a text like this, is that it's far less about when the events will take place and what God's calling them to do in the meantime. There are 19 imperatives, 19 commands that God gives in this one chapter. And they all have to do with what he wants his disciples and even just the people of God to do while these things, while they're waiting for these things to take place. And part of what he wants them to do is not uh, be on guard against false saviors, false messiahs, people who say that they're, they're here to bring uh, rescue, but in all reality are leading you in the wrong direction. Uh, be on guard for uh, what you are going to be facing, even in terms of the physical suffering. And I think that in some ways there's even a disconnect for us because we're, we're living in a relatively uh, kind of rare phenomenon of peace and comfort right now. And I think for what Jesus is saying is a lot of what's happening is, is birth pains, uh, what you're saying. And I think that we kind of can identify with that kind of language because, well, in some ways, the epidural has changed our lives in the best way possible. At least that's what my wife says. And I believe her. You speak like it's from your experience or something. Yeah. You know, we actually watched the Broncos game when my son was born. That's how easy it was with an epidural. So thank God for those. Um, but the whole thing is... Uh, Essentially, when he's talking about birth pains and those things aren't available, think about the imagery he's using. That when they begin to experience this immense suffering, tribulation, persecution, it is like birth pains. But that just only means that in this final moment, when it's all over, something so beautiful will come to pass, it will make up for everything else that has ever happened. And I think what's hard for us when we approach a text like this is we, living in a time of comfort, think, okay, so when tribulation and suffering comes, maybe things are getting close. But no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying those things always exist. And what you should have is hope that something so beautiful is going to come to pass. And in addition to that, in our current circumstance, if suffering is the event in which we can so easily lose hope, then I think it's fair to say that in in the event of comfort, is the time that we forget that we need it at all. And I think that what God is calling us to be a part of, even within this chapter, is to be people who are ready, knowing what the future holds in a grand way in terms of what that baby will be uh, and the beauty, the beauty of it when it will finally come. I think we're done, yeah? I mean, let's go. Okay. No, that's good. Amen. Uh, yeah, I think that you can read this text, and sometimes if you listen to it, what's being talked in Christendom, this is punishment. That Jesus has got a good mad going, and this is a very threatening text. Hold on to what Elijah just shared with you. Uh, I've not met a mother who wouldn't go through the pain of what she went through to deliver the baby she got. And Jesus is offering us hope here, not just threat. And when we hold on to that, it allows us to live differently too. So Elijah, let me come back to you. What will be the sign? How would you summarize what Jesus said? What would be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? Since he's talking about the near mountain and the far mountain, 
Uh, Chad Ragsdale on Thursday night used a beautiful imagery of when you're driving toward the uh, Rocky Mountains in Colorado, they look like one big mass, like it's just one mountain. Until you get over the top of them, you realize the depth and the miles it carries to go from peak to peak to peak. So having said that, uh, what will be the sign of, the, of his coming and what is the sign of the end of the age? Because the disciples seem to ask that question uh, in its duality. I think that in terms of the sign of the coming end of the age, uh, there's, there's two ways I think that you could look at this. And part of it is which question is Jesus answering? And so what I'll answer is specifically in regard to the abomination of desolation. Um, when, when Jesus says that, you, when you see the abomination of desolation, which I think that Luke even makes it a little more clear when he says this, which is when you see armies surrounding the city, um, you need to leave because that means that the temple is going to be destroyed. And this is the first sign of when, um, you know, the disciples ask in, in, uh, in verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. I think Luke probably makes a more poignant and, and helpful question, which is when we have difficult texts, we, we like to look at the parallels and kind of find the simplest understanding of it. But what Mark begins to do is he says, um, there's two things going on. One is when the temple will be destroyed, and one is when the, the, the age will finally come to an end. And I think when he says, the temple is going to be destroyed when you see the city surrounding you, and you need to get out. And I'm going to preserve the elect, those people in which um, have become to faithfully call on Jesus as the rightful Messiah and God. And they will know my words, because I'm telling you now, when this time comes, you need to leave. And we know that people were questioning this, because in First Thessalonians, everyone was asking, did we miss it? And, and Paul was like, no, you know you haven't missed it yet because cer- certain things have to come to pass and they haven't yet. And so I think the first thing that Mark begins to address what, of what Jesus is saying in verse 14 is, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. He's, ca- he's calling back to those Daniel prophecies that ultimately something's happening within the temple that is being invaded by a foreign uh, pagan source. And ultimately, we need to leave at that point because it's going to get bad for our nation. So, Michael, uh, as he's alluded to the Daniel text, and we talked about some of the Old Testament prophecies they would have understood, how does the Son of Man play into that in our understanding? It's a great question, yeah. And Daniel sprinkled all the way, all through here, for sure. He leans on Daniel with, when he's talking about the signs of the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he also leans on Daniel again uh, a little bit later on when he wants to discuss the, the return of Jesus back down in. So if you're looking at it down in... Um, Uh, Verse 24, but in those days following that distress, so we're now talking about the mountain a little bit further beyond, and then he quotes um, some of the cosmic signs in the sky that actually come from Isaiah, and that's the type of language, the sun will be dark and moon will not give its light, that tends to be figurative in the scriptures, and it refers to when when there's a regime change. When powerful things are happening and God is taking back control of his world from some pagan leader, um, even if that's his judgment on Israel in the Old Testament, his judgment on Babylon or whatever. And then at that time, verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And that's the part, uh, Daniel 7. If you guys are taking notes, write down uh, Daniel 7 to go read later on. Because when Jesus um, describes himself as the Son of Man, which is the way in which he most often describes himself. We have a lot of different titles for him, but when, he, when the one he chose for himself is the title Son of Man. And it is an allusion to this uh, chapter in Daniel, in the middle of the book, chapter 7, where uh, Daniel sees this vision of a, a bunch of different beasts, and they represent different empires who are going to try to take over the world. And they are fairly successful in their time. And then after these different beasts comes one like a son of man, who, long story short, God lifts up as the king to rule over all these other nations. 
And this becomes, uh, for Jesus, a perfect picture of what he believes that God has, has sent him as the son to do. So God sent Jesus to come and to establish a kingdom that rules over all the other nations, a power that is deeper and stronger and more long-lasting than any other power. And the beautiful thing about this, too, is uh, even the Daniel 7, Daniel 7 text, and Jesus kind of pointing back to it, is ultimately recalling the creation of Adam. And Eve, these human beings who were designed to rule over the beasts of the field. And so what we're talking about here is Jesus saying, I will, be, I will restore. God has sent me to restore. And he, when I return, I will fully restore the world as it was intended to be. With uh, me, Jesus, or that sounds funny, but you know what I'm saying. Jesus is saying, uh, you know, with me reigning over all of it and then with my people reigning with me together. And so that's the picture that we get here of a world where sin has finally been overcome. And it's that beautiful thing that, 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 uh, that Elijah's talking about, this this great picture of the end that really does, um, when we look back on all the suffering that we've experienced in the meantime, we're going to say what all the New Testament writers said, which is, man, that suffering was real, but it is not worth comparing to the glory that we're now experiencing. So yeah, that's what's going on. He's recalling Daniel 7 and this image of of a kingly figure ruling, and he's saying, God is establishing my kingdom. And that connects to, one more thing real quick, I think part of what he's doing here for, for his disciples in that generation is saying, when these, when these events take place and this, this city and this temple that, are, that you think are so central to everything that God is doing, when this takes place, I want you to understand what's going on. This is not God somehow losing the battle. This is actually a big, this is one part of the much bigger picture of, 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 of actually me being vindicated, of Christ being vindicated. Jesus is saying, these leaders of this temple rejected me. Now God will reject them. And you will know when that happens that I am indeed the Messiah and you can look forward to my return. So the the background, the history of this text, I imagine some of us are sitting in the room today going, so great. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Jesus was vindicated. How does that work in my life today? Most of the, the practicality of the gospel series so far has been giving you and me something to hold on to, something to think about, something to hold on in our soul, and to something to do with our hands. And we've talked in that language in the very beginning. So we're going we're gonna to conclude this morning by taking you, what do we do with this text? What difference does it make in our lives? Because the truth of what Jesus offered wasn't just a historical moment. It was actually a practical understanding of who he is. It's see him revealed in all of this. And I think the guys have done a really good job of talking about the suffering that was coming and the hope at the end of it. So, uh, Elijah, let's go with this. How, what does a ready servant for Jesus' return look like? We've, we've outlived AD 70. What does it look like to be a ready servant today knowing what we know from this text? Um, I think that probably Matthew, in his account of this, actually answers this the best. Um, but I think Mark gives the same, he's trying to give the same message, which is be ready, be awake, uh, be aware. And more than that, the way in which Mark describes this is not that we would be looking for the end to come, but that we would be on mission until it does. And what he begins to show is a servant who ultimately begins to neglect his responsibilities because he just decides he doesn't know Uh, He doesn't know when he's going to come back, but surely he has time to get those things done before he does. And I think that, uh, especially for us, this becomes specifically relevant because it's been 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years since he ascended and made these promises. And yet, we are called to, to live out our responsibilities, our callings, our purpose on life, and to not allow ourselves to neglect those things that God has called us to do. And in addition to that, you know, one of the things that, again, Matthew does really well, he, he describes three parables, and, and Chad taught on, taught on this last week. Um, 
But he does so in a way that shows one, in one instance, Jesus coming back early, in another instance, Jesus coming back on time, and in a, a third instance where Jesus is coming back late. And it's because we do not know. Even the Son of Man doesn't know. That's what Jesus says. Even the Son doesn't know. But the point isn't that he doesn't, but that the Father does. And regardless of what we experience in this life, whether it's hard, uh, hardship or comfort, that there is still one in control of even time itself. And so we can continue to rest in that even as we fulfill our responsibilities, knowing that we're actually accomplishing the very things that God is waiting for us to do. That boys can preach. All right, Michael, let's uh, end with this question. Uh, why the fig tree? Jesus ends with yeah. that, that little parable. Well, why does a fig tree, and what does it mean, and what do we take from it? I, I think it's a reinforcing of, um, for their context of precisely the points that Elijah was just making of the larger context for us. You know, at the end, um, you know, you, it was later on in the reading, but after he uh, turns his attention from the destruction of Jerusalem to the second coming, he comes back in verse 28 and says, almost as, almost as if to say, you know, just, I want to make sure you guys understand. Something's coming. I want you to be ready for it. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it's its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even though when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the end. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is when it comes to the events that are happening within their generation, he has given them sufficient warning so that they can actually avoid some of the worst of the suffering that's coming. He has told them, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see these pagan people coming, these pagan armies coming in here and desecrating the holy places of the temple, you will know this is the end of Jerusalem. This is the end of the temple. And I'm telling you right now, get out of town. And this actually happened historically. We know that the Christians who were living in Jerusalem at the time, when the city became surrounded, they got out quick and they were saved from some of the suffering that ensued. That was God's judgment on them for rejecting the Messiah. And I think in a bigger sense, what this is, is it's this indication that Jesus is telling us, no, seriously, you can trust me. I'm not just gloom and doom. I'm telling you how to get to the hope. I'm telling you a way to avoid the worst of what's coming. And of course, for us, this becomes a pointer to what he's about to do in the very, very immediate dying on the cross and rising from the dead. If you believe in me, and if you trust in me, and if you do these things, uh, you know, that I've called you to do, and all the while lean into grace, you don't have to be afraid. You can wake up and say, perhaps today, let's roll. If Jesus comes back, I'm good. If it's tomorrow, great. If it's later on, wonderful. Whenever it is, I'm ready, I'm excited, I'm anticipating it, I'm living in anticipation of this moment, but I'm not afraid because he's told me the way to avoid uh, the suffering that will come for those who do reject, who don't trust, and who decide to go their own way. Would you help me thank these guys for their time this morning and their, their thoughts on this particular text? So again, just as a pastor, it's important for me uh, to connect the dots because you may be sitting here thinking, okay, uh, facts. 70 AD, what Jesus said would happen, happened. And some of the things we're waiting on even to this day is the return I want to take your minds to a letter to the Hebrew Christians. In your Bible, it's simply called Hebrews. You'll notice that the author of this particular text is writing saying that Jesus is so much more than the things we've lost in life. The temple. The disciples began this journey by simply pointing out the temple and saying to Jesus, you're going to rule in there one day, and from there the power that you've come to display is going, and Jesus said, no, no, that." A temple's going to go, and you're going to lose something that matters to you, but it won't matter when it's all over. His power, his glory, his majesty are all established. The things that we lose in this life by following Jesus are nothing in comparison to what we gain. And in the moment, those losses are hard, 
and those losses bring us suffering and grief and tension. It's like saying goodbye to a loved one who's in the Lord, knowing that we miss them on our days here. And many of us grieve in our hearts for the loss of someone we desperately care about. Yet our minds know that the truth of Jesus is that he will resurrect them from the dead to life forever. And the suffering we face right now is nothing in comparison to what we gain. And Jesus is saying, trust me, that even in those moments when it seems like it's all uh, falling apart, I am going to reign. I am going to rule. I am going to wipe every tear and dry every tear. I am going to take care of you. If you have hope in who Jesus is, there's nothing that life throws us. There's nothing that life brings us. There's nothing that life can do to us that Jesus cannot remedy. And even though we're going to go through periods of time where he has warned us, and faith is going to be the only thing we have to hold on to when it all seems scary to us, he is going to replace everything we've lost with something so much greater and something that can never be taken from us. That's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus we honor. That's the Jesus we're asking some of you to begin to follow. And the way you follow Jesus is you simply surrender to his word, surrender to his presence, and surrender to his truth. And should you do that, you'll find testimony in this room. There's a bunch of us that will say, you'll never regret that. There'll never be a moment in your life that you'll wonder, was following Jesus worth it? And so this morning, we're going to ask those of you that would like to be prayed for, maybe you're struggling with some of the suffering you're going through and some of the pressure you're feeling and some of the things going on in your life that you can't explain. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit on those And we're going to have some of our elders and some of their church members and our prayer partners go to those tables to meet you there. If you'd like someone to pray with you, if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, if you'd like to set your life on a path of faith rather than just a path of hoping things work out, then we're inviting you this morning to become a, a part of this congregation of people in this community, to pursue Jesus with all your worth. He can be trusted. His word is true. And he brings life. Let's stand together and sing. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.